Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 266 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, it's an incredibly exciting week. We have been in the early stages of the Church Growth Masterclass, and tomorrow... Uh, the price changes. So if you haven't yet checked out what's happening at Church Growth Masterclass, we got a special launch rate on for 24 more hours. Jeremy McDonald and I, who I'll introduce in a minute, uh, talk all about church growth. He grills me on the backstory of our church. I've been here for 24 years. Uh, What were some of the barriers? And sometimes, you know, when you hear stuff like, oh, church growth, it's like, yeah, great. You're going from 1,000 to 2,000 or whatever. No, we started with a handful of people, literally. So when you talk about church growth barriers, we had to break the 10 barrier, the 20 barrier, the 50 barrier, the 100, the 200, the 500, the 800, the 1,000, and now the 1,500 barrier. So I got a little bit of experience in that area, and we talk all about it in the podcast. And also, how do you get people who don't want to change to change? Yeah, Jeremy asked me all about that. So I had him, he's actually on our staff at Connexus, one of our campus pastors. Uh, I had him interview me today. And I want to give you the whole backstory behind the Church Growth Masterclass, some of the things I've learned. And once you register at the Church Growth Masterclass, you'll get instant access to this course and you'll learn how to lead your church through seven critical conversations for your church's future growth. It's very true. And I just want to say this, you know, I can't make your church grow and you can't make your church grow. Only God can make it grow. However, you can position yourself for growth. And there's a big difference. And people in your community need to hear the message of Christ. And the best way to get that message out is to be equipped to reach them so you can go into the world, change families, lives, destinies. The Church Growth Masterclass is going to be around, but the price changes tomorrow. We've got an introductory rate right now. So head on over to churchgrowthmasterclass.com to make sure you don't miss out. And speaking of how things are changing and how to reach people, there's a a funny video on YouTube about two younger people trying to dial a rotary phone. Anyone here remember rotary phones? Man, I remember like if if your friend had like eights and nines in their phone number, I used to hate that because it took so long for the rotary dial thing to come back. Anyway, you can check out that video. We'll link to it in the show notes. But ProMediaFire realizes, hey guys, it's been a long time (laughs) since anyone's dialed a rotary phone, okay? And if you're still trying to use those methods, that was part of my story. Like Jeremy and I talk about it in this interview, like these guys were were still stuck in the like 70s, 80s when I got there and I got there in the 90s and we had to kind of put the paddles on and jumpstart things. What are you doing to reach out online? And what are you doing with your limited budget to really make an impact in your community? That's where Pro Media Fire can come in. We live in a media generation. If you heard last week's episode with Sean Cannell, you know all about it. People are consuming more content online than ever before. And if your church or business is not speaking the language of media, you'll not be able to reach people today. That's why a partner like Pro Media Fire is so vital and their team of graphic designers and video editors will create custom videos and graphics for you each month for a flat rate. That's right. You don't have to worry about, oh, we can't afford this one more project. So if you need some fire for your content on social, check out Pro Media Fire. Listeners of this podcast get 10% off their plans for life if you go to this URL, 
promediafire.com forward slash carry. That's promediafire.com forward slash C-A-R-E-Y. They will take extremely good care of you there. Well, without much further ado, let's get into my conversation with one of our staff members at Connexus Church, Jeremy McDonald. He's been around for a couple of years. He's got his own podcast. He does the Canadian Youth Workers Podcast, which is a great podcast. And uh, he's a great question asker really curious. So I said, I want you to interview me about church growth. And this is some of the backstory to my 24 years in leadership, all about how to jumpstart the growth of dying and stagnant churches, how to scale growth barriers, and uh, well, a whole lot more. My conversation with Jeremy McDonald. All right. Well, today we are flipping the microphone and I am being interviewed by the one and only Jeremy McDonald. (laughs) Carrie, it's so good to be here. This is in like Podcast Central in your basement in in the middle Mm -hmm. of Oro. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fun. I'm excited for this Also known as the middle of nowhere. Yeah. (laughs) Which is where I live. (laughs) Which is where we all live. And uh, this is going to be so much fun. I'm excited to learn as Uh a part of this conversation. I've got questions that I'm continuing to wrestle through in my own leadership, um, but excited that we get a chance to talk about church growth and talk about some of the things that you've kind of led with and that you've put out there that have helped so many people already. I'm going to dig down if that's all right. Can I push yeah, back no, on things great. today? Yeah, and just a little bio of you. So Jeremy and I have worked together for, is it two and a half years now? Yeah, almost three years. At the staff at Connexus Church, you're one of our campus pastors, also in charge of, what did we put you in charge of? A few, <laughs> a few I things. Know. Student, I don't know anything Yeah, anymore. no, that's okay. Student ministry, and I do some stuff. Uh, I oversee a couple of our staff members and- uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun at Connexus. That's so, right. Yeah, I think good. of you as a campus pastor. That so is the go. primary. That's the header on my uh, business mm-hmm. cards. So, but we didn't we didn't have any campuses back in the day. Well, you know, and the truth is, is one of the fun parts about coming to Connexus has been obviously we get a chance to chat and I get to learn from you and from Jeff. Well, and from I get our team. to learn from you. It but on top of that, ways. I was a podcast listener and blog reader before I came here. I wanted yeah. to know if the stories were true. Like, <laughs> like, do I lie a lot? Well, no, I mean, I, I assumed you didn't lie, but I thought maybe like pastor math on like where things started. How bad was it when I got here 24 years was ago? Was it 24 years ago? 24 years ago, the last week of April, May 1st, 1995 was my first day as a pastor in ministry in, in the mega churches of Oro Medanti. Yeah. Like I've driven by all of those original three churches Mm -hmm. and I now know they're not big, are they? No, (laughs) no. (laughs) Is that fair to say? They are very tiny. And uh, you're in my office. It's not a lot bigger. (laughs) You know, the churches weren't a whole lot bigger. We'd all fit right there on those chairs. Well, and those original days, when you talk about them, like I've fact-checked, I hope that's okay. No, it's great. I've fact-checked with some of the originals and, uh, and it's fun. They're still a part of our church now now, Connexus, yeah. some of those people that were there way yeah. back in the day. And it was how big were those th- original three? Well, uh, when I started in 1995, I did the circuit of three traditional mainline churches, average attendance. And remember, they hadn't grown in three decades. Mm. My predecessor was 85 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And he had been there a long time. All right. So uh, the first church was six people, average attendance. Uh, and Phyllis is still there today. Phyllis! Part of Connexus. She yeah. was part of Guthrie Church. Isn't that uh, something? Phyllis, so I mean, uh, listeners don't know, but Phyllis continues to come in to mm-hmm. our very location and reset our seat pockets. I chat with Phyllis um, probably every other week. I'll see her in there, which is great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see her on Thursdays when I'm in too. 
And then the second church was, uh, was central and they had about 14 average attendants and Jim and Crean Gray, who are part of our <laughs> church today. Uh, I mean, Crean was a young teacher with little kids and they were the only young people like they were in their forties at the time in the church. That's something. Yeah. And if Corrine's listening, we still think she's young. She's just she's not. She's very young. Yeah, extremely <laughs> young. I want to, she stayed young. She, yeah, she will, uh, mm-hmm. she will give us uh, a little hey, what for. Uh, but she still volunteers. And Jim and Corrine spent time with them at Christmas Eve, at our Christmas Eve services. That's incredible. Yeah. And then the last one, is that where the it Blacks St. were? St. Andrews. Yeah, the Blacks were there. The Shellswells were there. And uh, they still come. I mean, there's uh, a handful of people. Unfortunately, you know, if you have a, a dying mainline church, a lot of the people when I came were in their 70s or 80s. So unfortunately, they're not around anymore. Uh, but yeah, Dave Black, Dave and Luann Black were there. And Dave, my favorite story about Dave is uh, Dave was an <laughs> elder, but he wasn't a Christian. So we took him to one of Billy Graham's, I think his final crusade in Toronto in 1995. And Dave got saved. It's always a good idea to have, make sure your elders of your local <laughs> church are Christians. Uh, but there were 23 people at the mega church. Yeah, mm-hmm. my gosh. So Dave and Luann are phenomenal. I mean, Dave still serves every oh, yeah. Sunday morning on E-Team. Uh, Luann does a ton of stuff for us and for our partner, the Lighthouse in town. And, and so, Carrie, to get us started mm-hmm. here, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how the like these folks that 24 years ago were a part of a dead and dying church, that mm. they're still a part of our church to this day, but yeah. that they're more fired up about the mission than ever before. And like you've written before and in and, and Lasting Impact, I, I've read through and uh, I mean, I love the conversation that you sparked from there. But yeah. You've talked about how the preferences of insiders, they'll trump the passion for the mission in those declining churches. But the reverse has been true for these folks that they are more passionate about the mission. How did that change? <laughs> I, don't, I, I mean, they'd laugh if they were here, but there was nothing to be passionate about in 1995. Yeah. I mean, when, you're, when you've been stuck for three decades, when your church hasn't grown, I mean, I would think they would tell you it was about revival or or sorry, survival, survival. There was one guy who was my boss. He was an older retired pastor who was sort of in charge of the upstart student. And he believed in revival, but everybody else was into survival. And the question was really, you know, when I came in as a 30 year old student in 1995, the number one question they had is how do we keep this thing open? How do we keep this alive? So there are a lot of churches that church growth is almost unimaginable for them because they, uh, you know, they're like growth. All we want to do is survive. And I know a lot of leaders listening right now, you're right there. There's been zero growth. There's, there's no growth. There's a decline. There's stagnancy. And Lyle Schaller said years ago that small churches are like cats. And I mean, when you have average attendances of 6, 14 and 23, those are small churches. And uh, they're like cats because they have nine lives and you can't kill them. And it's true. Like there was just enough money coming in to keep the lights on. And we couldn't, you know, you know how broke the churches were. And again, talk to, talk to the originals. I call them the originals about this because they predate me. We couldn't even afford to keep the building heated during the week. So the boiler would fire up on Saturday night or Sunday morning, just in time for Sunday and then go out Sunday afternoon and, you know, Seven days would go by. And if we had a midweek meeting, we'd have to heat the church. There was no phone in the church, no internet in the church, no nothing. Listeners from California don't understand the essential need for heat. Yeah, well, we are in Canada. We're north of Toronto, about an hour north of Toronto. And uh, yeah, it gets cold here. If you walked into those churches in 1995, 
it could have been 1965 or 1945. You mm. would have no clue that the 20th century was almost over. And if you went to a service, you would have no clue that it was in 1975. Mm. Nothing had changed. Okay, so I, I get that you and your leadership would have been, you would have been excited to reach people for sure. Mm-hmm. But but there's something that's different. I, I can only tell by the, the stories that even Dave and Luann would share, but there's something different inside of them when they think about church. When they think about reaching people, how did you see change happen in the lives of some of those longstanding church people that have been around for so long? Well, part of it was because it was about institutional survival. It was about maintenance, not mission. Um, We had to go back to the very early principles of the church. And for any church that stuck, that would be like, I would love to have the problem of church growth. I would love to have a growing church. We'd love to reach more people. Uh, Where I started with all that was the mission. And we literally, I I remember some of those early elder meetings and you got to start with the leaders you have, not with the leaders you wish you had. So we had to start like, I, you know, I I didn't know what I was doing. I was 30 years old. Like I had no clue, just had passion, had what I believed was a calling to lead in the local church. And so you kind of make it up as you go along. And so we just opened our Bibles. I remember reading Ephesians, which was one of my favorite books with the elders. And I just said, okay, what's the purpose of the church? And as we read through some passages, it seemed to me that we're supposed to spiritually grow the people who are with us and reach the people who aren't. And we kind of found that dual mission of the church of discipleship and evangelism. That first summer, uh, we, we said, there's no kids in these churches. I guess, I guess the larger church, St. Andrews had a couple of kids, like three kids or something, but like there was no Sunday school. And so it's like, well, let's do a vacation Bible camp. And I didn't know how to run one. They didn't know how to run one. Nobody had ever done it. And we did it. And there were like 40 or 50 kids the first year. We just like literally photocopied flyers, put them in people's mailboxes, invite some people. People actually came. We had no idea what we were doing. But those those are the fun things. I mean, hey, when you start a podcast like this, I didn't know what I was doing. It's just like, you know, when you start blogging, I don't know what I'm doing. When I wrote my first book, how do you write a book? I don't know. I have no (laughs) idea how to write a book. So why don't we just try Right. And you have that sort of entrepreneurial missionary zeal. And that's what we had. And like by September, we had kids, not a lot of kids, but we had a couple dozen kids and we started to grow almost overnight. And, uh, you know, I, I started preaching every Sunday and having a guy in his 30s while I was 30 at the time uh, preaching and, you know, with a little bit of passion helped. And then that kind of that kind of put a spark in people. But one of the things we had to overcome, I remember a conversation with a really sweet guy. I loved him a lot. His name was Walter, but he didn't like anything I did. And uh, (laughs) I remember saying to Walter, like, what do we do that spiritual around here? And he goes, well, we don't do anything spiritual. We're farmers. He says, we just talk about hay and horses. And I'm like, what? This is the 21st century almost. (laughs) Talk about hay and horses. And I'm like, well, we have to have spiritual conversations in the church. And he's like, we don't do that. And basically it was a culture club. It was just, Mm -hmm. and if you think about a lot of stuck churches, they're really there to cater to the preferences of their members rather than to the mission that we were given. And I'm like, oh, we got to change this. And so we just, you know, we started to have spiritual conversations. We started a Bible study. It was a precursor to a small group. So again, because we couldn't use the buildings during the week, I just invited people to our living room and people came and soon we kind of outgrew the living room. And, you know, not everybody was into that. People were like, no, we just want to talk about hay and horses. But 
Um, yeah. So tell me about yeah. like some of those people that did just want the hay and horses, or even as you talked about the real purpose behind the church. And I love that, hey, let's open the scriptures and let's go back to mm-hmm. what are we really here for that dual mission discipleship and evangelism? Yeah. Like surely that sparked something in some people where there's some people that said, well, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I mean, uh, growth is good and everyone's in favor of it until it means change. And so we went through several waves of growth. The first was we just had someone who was younger in the pulpit with kids. And, you know, I was pretty passionate. I'm still pretty passionate, right? So I'm pretty passionate. So that's going to help. And then we did a vacation Bible camp and like kids showed up. So nobody, we didn't have a lot of opposition, but then I'm like, okay, the music here stinks. Like, let's just be honest. It's terrible. I wasn't quite that, but you know me. It wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you I could have be pretty blunt, that. right? I may have actually, that may have actually come out of my mouth because <laughs> I will, I will speak my mind. I yeah, have the spiritual gift of I've been in a couple of meetings. Yeah, that's fair. It's all good. Yeah, I'm like, but it, but it was, it was terrible. And the yeah. whole community had been complaining for years that the music, well, they hadn't, you know what? No one, no one who doesn't go to your church is ever going to complain that it's terrible mm. because they're not in your church because it's terrible. Yep. That's why they're not there. They're like, you're irrelevant. You don't speak to me. You don't, you don't have anything to offer. So I'm like, we got to change the music. But again, you got to start with the people you have. So, I mean, that was in it. And if she, if she was in the room, she's in the house. But if she's in the room, you know, Tony, my wife would tell you, she has grade nine conservatory piano. She started playing the piano. Well, it was better than like nobody playing. And I mean, the music was so bad that some Sundays I led the singing. That's wow. how horrible it was. Yeah, well, we had nobody to play music, so I'm like, open your hymn books too. No, 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 no. it was awful. Isn't that something? Okay, well, yeah. I want to know about a little bit more awful. about not exactly the the singing. Um, although, if you would sing on this podcast, nope. I'm sure. Nope. <laughs> nope. Okay, but you know, when you think about scaling an organization and trying to reach more people, you're going to need to empower more volunteers. Absolutely. Mm. So you're onboarding new people. You're casting vision towards them. But when are the times when you realize? oh, there's just a job that needs to get done so that we can go to the next level as an organization? Yeah, well, that's where you start. I mean, we have an incredible band now, uh, you know, and we do three locations. And so I don't know how many, how many musicians is that? 12 to 15 on a Sunday? Probably. Yeah, well, 15 to probably 20, yeah. Oh, is that many? I yeah, can't count. Depends on the- yeah. Anyway, it's a, it's a lot of people. And, and they all play either at a professional level or they could play at a professional level. Like now you've got to play to click. You've got to play in front of many, many people. You, you're playing to an online audience of thousands. I mean, the whole deal, you got to be able to do harmony, play without looking at your music. But you don't start there. And if somebody, I always think back, you know, if somebody had shown me a picture in 1995 and said, hey, fast forward 24 years, this is what your church is going to look like, I would have had a heart attack and died but you get there in little increments. So what I did was, oh, this guy plays the guitar. All right, well, maybe we can introduce the guitar. This person is a better keyboard player and Tony would be the first. She was so happy to give that up. Like, let's get somebody in who here who can really play. And how about not the piano, the upright piano? Why don't we get someone on keyboard? And then uh, we got a bass player. And, you know, we started with, well, it wasn't very good, but but it was better than what we had. And, and I think that's the leadership principle there is you have to start with who you have, not with who you don't have. Because you can, particularly, we didn't have social media. So I didn't know what the church down the road was doing. I kept my eyes on the ground. 
But how do you know? So sometimes, yeah, you can't start something if you don't have the person for it. But like in your example of you actually leading worship, sometimes you actually step up as the leader and do something you obviously can't do indefinitely. Right. But because this next phase needs it, how do you know when it's time to just take a hold of something as the leader and get it done? Well, I think sometimes, particularly when things are small or you're just starting out or you're planting or, you know, you're doing a reboot like we were doing when I first started is, yeah, you lead by example. So to go back to Vacation Bible Camp, we did three different ones and I was the director for all three. Now, I was a terrible director, (laughs) as you can imagine. I wasn't very good, but something is better than nothing. And what I said is, I will do this once. I'll try to figure it out. And I'm not a details person. So I'm sure there were like disasters abounded, I'm sure. But we had kids and we had families and some of them committed their lives to Christ. And it was amazing. And then I said, but I'm not doing it again. So I I met, I had other people who I kind of did it alongside with me. And I said, next year, it's on you. And then, and then I was involved but I had a diminishing role year after year. And they became the big, I was told by the time we don't do them anymore, but the time we, we wrapped up that we were the biggest vacation Bible camp in the country. Oh yeah. I didn't know that, but well, I do hear the stories like the, those days that it was at the Oro fairgrounds. Yeah. We were at the Oro fairgrounds. That's awesome. and yeah. It was, it was pretty cool. We just rent out these because we outgrew the church. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, Carrie, I even think about for us at Connexus, you know, when we started our online, um, online service and yeah, we yeah. were p- putting things online, you led the charge to, to get us there, which I think was so helpful because you started something great that, um, as now connected with thousands of people each and every single week. Yeah. Um, but truthfully, I'm sure back when you were trying to figure that out, like that's still a new thing. It needs to get done. Somebody needs to take a hold of it, but you didn't do it indefinitely. You did it with the intention of empowering somebody to lead that. I think that's a good that's a good insight for visionary leaders, Jeremy. Because I mean, I'm a visionary. That's what I do, and I'm a good starter. Uh, I'm not a great finisher, and I'm a terrible maintainer. I'd rather just have other people sort of run the operation because once it's started, I lose interest. And I, that's not good. That's just true. It's it's like new and all that. But I think where a lot of visionaries struggle. And as you know, 94% of churches aren't growing. 80% are 200 or smaller. And if you're a for-profit business leader, 96% of all businesses, for-profit businesses, never break the million dollar in sales mark. Now that's because some people don't want to, but often it's because the visionary can't let go. The visionary can't delegate the visionary. And I think that level the, the, the big barrier in church world is 200. If you are the pastor who does everything, you're leading vacation Bible camp, you're leading the Bible study at your house, you're preaching once or twice a week, you're, you're leading all the meetings. Like the, the cap for that is 200 people. And the next cap for that, because you can, you can have a whole lot of, you know, you can get operators. So I, I, eventually as we grew, I hired staff but there's still, even, even here with this podcast today, you know, we were just working on a problem and I jumped in this morning and made a decision. Uh, at first I said to my podcast producer, producer, I said, Hey, you handle that one. I'm fine with it. Then I had an appointment. I forgot that I said she was going to handle it. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know whether I like this or not. And I jump back in and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want this thing to grow. You want it to scale. I said, you know what? You make the call. I trust you. Just, and that is a really hard move for a lot of leaders to make, but it's one of those, those really hard things you have to do where you release and you delegate. 
And the challenge, I think, in the early years when you're, when you're growing and you're scaling is that sometimes, particularly if you have some gifts in the area, you might be better at it than the people that you're releasing it to, but you've still got to release it if you want the cause to grow. Because otherwise, uh, you know, at 200, if you're the person who does everything, you're either going to burn out uh, if you grow to 300 or your church will shrink back down to 170, 180 or even 120, the level at which you can personally service it. And then when you go to the thousand barrier, the thousand barrier, I was, I was just on a call with some leaders the other day on this. And they're like, we've been stuck at seven, 800 for a long time. Well, one of the key barriers for people trying to pass a thousand is simply this. How many decisions still cross your desk? And if you're like, hey, wait a minute, Jeremy, don't make that. I, I, I need some input into that. Wait a minute. You want to bring that back to me? Now, there are some decisions you should absolutely. I mean, if you're running a church of 50,000, you're still going to have to make some decisions. You've still got to have input in things. But your ability to release and not even know about it has to increase and that's, that's a big issue. Okay, so that's a huge issue. And I think even for my leadership and for our Aurelia campus, there are things that, okay, internally I know I need to be able to hand that leadership over to someone. But what happens when somebody else thinks you should hold on to it? Somebody else thinks you should still yeah. know that detail. Somebody else thinks you should still take care of that project. How do you actually wrestle that one to the ground? Because then it's somebody else coming in, kind of pointing fingers at, oh, you let that go too early? That's a, that's hard for me at least to deal with personally. Yeah, it can be. You know where you feel that pressure the most intense is in a congregation that is 200 attenders or under or in a very small mom and pop style business. And the pressure is there. First of all, most people, and, and this has been something that I've had to do, you know, you're leading the largest thing you've ever led at every point in your leadership. Like this is the largest church you've been a part of, right? Yeah. We're not the biggest church in the world, but it's the largest thing you've ever been a part of. It's the largest thing I've ever, you know, started and been a part of. And even the podcast, you know, it's different pushing 10 million downloads than it felt pushing 100,000. It's just different. It's complicated. It has scale. It has issues. It's, you know, writing your fifth book is different than writing your first book, dealing with major publishers. Like everything's got scale issues in it. And I think the key is you have to be, this was really hard for me because as a leader, I felt responsible. And first, you, I felt responsible to do everything. We teach this in the Breaking 200 course in the master class, but I felt responsible to do everything. I have to do everything. And then it was like, okay, well, I can't do everything anymore. I'm going to die or it's going to stay small. So, okay, I can't do everything, but maybe, maybe I have to lead everything because I'm the leader, right? You're a leader. You're the campus pastor. You have to you have to lead everything. You can't do it all, but you can lead everything. And it's like, no. And then maybe, okay, well, I have to run everything. No, you don't have to run everything. And then, you know, the other one, the two that were the hardest for me, I have to attend everything. Mm. So as our church, because this is the really awkward stage, when we had grown, we eventually amalgamated those three churches and then built a, a central facility together. And... Um, just because they were five minutes apart. When they were built, they were like, you know, horse and carriage ride away. But now, you know, 20th century, 21st century, it's like, oh, five minute car ride. Let's just amalgamate these things and start something new together. So we did that. But when it was four or 500 people, uh, I realized I couldn't attend everything anymore. And I felt so guilty. I The people must have come and, and actually- Oh yeah, where's Carrie? Yeah. 
what does he not care? Is he too busy? Yeah. Are we, oh yeah, that that's huge. And I- Because your presence communicates value, certainly. Yeah. So how did you convince those people that your lack of presence didn't communicate lack of value? Oh, that's a good way to phrase it. Um, you have to be, you have to be prepared to be misunderstood. And I remember, uh, you know, at our old house, the one 10 minutes away, we lived in two houses in 25 years. But anyway, the old house, I remember not wanting, we had a big picture window at the front where you could see from the street. And I remember hiding in the back of the house because I wanted people to think I was sick or dead. And that's <laughs> why I wasn't there, right? I didn't want people to know I was home with my family. And there was tremendous guilt. But you know what? Like, think about all the things that we do now. We're not a program-based church that's open seven days a week. But, you know, when you're at an event for Conexus, do people ask, where's Carrie? No. It, it, no, but like... They're so, shocked if I show up. <laughs> so what happened? You're real. Wow. How did that happen? Right? It is. Uh, the old timers do love it when you come up to Aurelia and they they wonder if there's if there's something wrong sometimes. <laughs> yes. Are you asking for money or did someone die? What happened? Why are you here? But but mm-hmm. seriously, Carrie, because I think that there's leaders listening that they know the if they don't show up to that event, they right. know the person that's going to confront them about it. And they're going to be misunderstood, certainly. But like, how? Do, what do you say okay, to the so person that confronts Okay, so what I would say, you? I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah. So very specifically, what I would say is, hey, you know what? Our church has a lot of gifted people. We want to release them. And when you think about where we're going, Jeremy, like you think about the people we're reaching, it will eventually become impossible for me or for anybody, for that matter, to attend all the events. And when you have leaders as capable as we have, I don't even need to be there. And I want to have some time with my family from time to time as well. Healthy people understand that. Unhealthy people don't. Yeah. Okay. So what mm. happens when it's clearly like, no, this is a toxic person. Because again, thinking about some smaller mm. churches, yeah. there's somebody bringing up in a business meeting that mm. you as the senior leader aren't coming to enough Bible studies or you're not doing the seniors hymn sings anymore or whatever it might be. And so how do you deal with that toxic person that's constantly stirring the pot as you're trying to make the change? You just shrug your shoulders. You say, thank you for your input and you move on. And do you, did they eventually? They eventually leave. A healthy system will squeeze out toxic people. And a toxic system will squeeze out healthy people. And so we were trying to build a healthy system. And I think fundamentally we were more healthy than we were toxic. And so I, yeah, you know, I remember those congregational meetings. Jeremy, there's a reason we don't have congregational meetings anymore. (laughs) I'll tell you that. (laughs) And I'm grateful for it. But you got to, you got to tell a story, Carrie. Like you got to get, cause there's, cause somebody's got it. It's coming up. They have it on their calendar and they know somebody's going to stand up and try and rip them a new one. You know what? Sometimes, honestly, you've got to be, uh, this is my approach. I'm not saying it was a perfect approach, but we had lots of congregational meetings. And yeah, as we started to say, hey, we're going to change the music. Hey, we're going to sell the buildings. Hey, we're going to build something. Oh, guess what? It costs millions of dollars. Like you get opposition to that. Hey, we're going to leave a denomination and start something new. You know, you get get a little bit of opposition along the way. And what I've learned is you've got to be united on your inner core. So you've got your, your top leaders, your senior staff, your elder board. If you guys are united, if you prayed about it, if you've thought about it, if you've, if you've surrendered it, and there's really unity at the top, that doesn't mean you're going to have everybody agreeing all the time. But you know, this isn't something you thought of at 8 a.m. at breakfast and now you're 
floating it in front of the congregation that afternoon. No, this is a well-digested, prayerfully thought through, carefully weighed decision that you're making together. And then you got to test it publicly. You And you've got a united inner core. I think you just let those people talk. And if they're really toxic, you, you know, you pull the microphone from them. But for the most part, I don't think I ever pulled the mic from anybody. No, no. And um, so I would, I would never rebut them publicly. I would just say, Jeremy, thank you so much for that. Is there anyone else? That has an incredible way of not validating what they're saying. And what happens in that moment is usually the healthy people start to silently want to defend you. And sometimes somebody else will get up on the mic and you don't have to say a word. I mean, to some extent, isn't that, I'm not trying to say this is what Jesus did, but that is exactly his approach to his trial was he didn't say a word. He just let all of it swirl around him. And, you know, again, to quote Jesus, wisdom is proved right by all of her children. If I'm making disastrous decisions with our core leadership team, that is going to have a way of, of showing up and becoming evident to even the healthy people that, wow, you're a disastrous decision maker. And we didn't make all great ones, but, you know, fundamentally, it's, we're reaching a lot more people than we, we ever imagined that we would. And, and then um, sometimes I would just say nothing. And I would have people streaming forward at the end of those meetings who said, how did you keep your, your tongue, you know, intact? Yeah. How, did you, how did you just stay silent? And I'm like, well, I don't know what can be gained by saying anything. And then eventually the momentum, like I remember the last time we had something really toxic. It was somebody, and I, I wasn't even making a big salary at the time, but it was still public knowledge. And I think it was probably double what he made or whatever. He was sort of one of those guys who was marginal employment. He made a big stink about it in the congregational meeting. And, you know, why don't we pay you all $20,000 a year kind of thing? And it was just, it was, it was devastating. And, but I didn't say anything. And you know what? He's not around anymore. And people who enjoy doing that aren't around anymore because the mission has that flywheel effect. It has that you know, the, 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 the train has left the station and it's left a lot of those people behind. And often they need a smaller organization. They want to be a big fish in a small pond and they want to stir up trouble and they need a place where people will listen to them. And if you're just like, thank you. And you move on and you don't give them ground. What I've discovered over my time, and we don't have a lot of that, like be honest, last two and a half years, how much time do you spend dealing with like toxic chronic complainers? Yeah, hardly any at all. Exactly. And yeah. the reason, Jeremy, is because they can't get traction. They can't get ground. And what'll happen is if, you know, if you feed that fire, if you fuel that fire, it's going to burn bright. But if you just kind of, eventually what I saw happen is, yeah, there were times where they felt like, you know, wow, because they're loud, there must be a large number. It's never more than 10% of your church. And I teach this when I teach on change. Like you have a church of a hundred. You're like, oh my goodness, everyone's opposed. It's like, well, write down the names of the people who are opposed. I've never, I've taught this to thousands of church leaders. And, and this is true in any business, customer or whatever. If you have an organization of a hundred, most people can't even come up with 10 names. But those six families, those six people, they're just, ah, they're so loud. And that's only, so you're gonna, you're gonna let 10% or 6% of your congregation determine the future of 90%. 
And then you start to look at the 99% you haven't reached. You're going to, it's the opposite of the parable of the lost sheep. And so what I found is those toxic people just got a smaller and smaller audience. You know, at first there were 10 people listening, then there were five people listening and soon they're in a corner talking to themselves. And then eventually they leave because they, they're like, well, I'm not getting anywhere here. It's like the trolls on your platform. If you're engaging with them all the time, you're feeding their fire. If you just kind of ignore them and you engage the good people on the internet, who is the vast majority of the listeners of this podcast, there's lots of good people out there and, and go fuel them. Does it still hurt emotionally though, when somebody takes a run at you? It did a lot more at the beginning. Um, I, I don't want to say it doesn't. I mean, there are times where it still gets under my skin but you know what? I mean, I'm just thinking online world. I usually click over. It's like, oh, eight followers. Okay. Well, there, there you go. You know, maybe that's a little bit sarcastic <laughs> or sinful. I don't know. But uh, often these are people who are really unhappy and you look at their track record and you realize, oh, they've done this at five churches and we're number six. Okay. There you go. I get it. So, so you kind of look at their track record and, the, you know, the questions that, that, and, and this was, you know, um, Jim Gray was at that meeting. I remember being at that meeting. We talked about Jim and Cream. Uh, where it was an elders meeting back in the mid 90s or late 90s. And we did have a lot of opposition at the time. And there's two questions we learned to ask to filter all of the opposition. One was, was is there a biblical argument in what they're saying? Because not everybody who criticizes you is wrong. And often there's a kernel of truth in what they're saying. Uh, but what I found is for the most part, there wasn't a biblical argument in what people were saying. Uh, and if there was, you better pay attention to it. But then the second question was, are these the kinds of people that we can build the future of the church on? And when you ask that question, even now, start running people like volunteers through that filter, even if they're not toxic. It's like, is this kind of person we can build the future of the church on? That tells you an awful lot pretty quickly. Oh, good. And you want to you want to put you want to put into your senior levels of leadership the people that you can build the future of the church on, and you can't build the future of the church on a critic. So fascinating. Is there a, a time like if you come in and let's say there's somebody that's newer to their church and newer to their organization, is there like an expectation that this might take a year or two years to pull together the right group of people that you can build the future on? Like it can't happen overnight, obviously. No, I think you can start right away and you have to start with who you have. You have to start with the best person, the best people you have. See, and all this is related to growth because long-term, you are never gonna grow if you're unhealthy. Healthy things grow. So if you got a whole lot of toxic people or you're letting those four to seven families ruin everything for everybody or the negative voices are in seats of power, you're going to have a really hard time reaching a community with the positive gospel of Jesus Christ. You're just going to, people don't, you know, it's like if, if you came over to our house, which you did today to, to record this, and Tony and I were having an argument in the living room, you would probably turn around and drive around the block waiting for it to end, right? And then it's like, hey, honey, why does nobody want to come over for dinner anymore? It's because you guys are always fighting. Would you shut up, right? Yeah, you and that's guys a actually, growth barrier. You guys actually like each other, which is kind of fun. I yeah, think we do. Good. We yeah. do. Most days. Most days we really have a good time. <laughs> Sorry, I was, I was, oh yeah. So you start with who you have. Yeah. And so what you look for is the healthiest people yep. and you look for the best leaders you can find. And often the way to do that, particularly for the untapped leaders, 
is look at what they're doing with their life. Because leadership development, like getting that ministry pipeline, that leadership pipeline in place is essential for growth. So who is the mom organizing all the moms at the playground or Mm. for the play school? She's probably a leader. You're married to somebody who's a natural leader, right? Like you look at your wife, she's a natural leader. Um, who, who is the dad heading up the local soccer league or baseball league? You know, what are they doing? Who, who is, who are the people who are uh, leading at work and who keep getting promoted at work, whether that's a coffee shop, a grocery store, an online business, real estate, you know, the professions, whatever that happens to be, who are those people? Because if they're leading in the world and they have a good faith, good character, it's probably evidence of a leadership gift that can be utilized in the church. Yeah, and maybe just like nobody's invited them to a high level of ownership around the mission that God's called us to. Like you put something big in front of them around the church and all of a sudden maybe they'd be willing to move into the space and be a part of what you're doing in your church. Yeah, and and you know, often you find if you have a stuck or stagnant church that the people who are in leadership are there. They don't even necessarily have the gift of leadership. Secondly, they half of them don't want to be in leadership. They just did it because nobody else wanted to do it. It was and their Christian duty to it serve. It was their Christian duty. And maybe their <laughs> grandfather served on Man. that board, you know, like all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's why people serve for sociological reasons, not just theological yeah. reasons. Well, and Carrie, in the Breaking Two Hundred course, you talk, uh, you talked about how good leaders are often built, not bought, mm. and the idea that if you can build from within, that you can actually build an organization that can continue to grow and scale beyond you. And I think for us, like there are so many leaders that have been a part of our church for decades or for years. And the example that you use are Justin and Sarah, which are of course our close friends these days. Mm. But I would love to know maybe some of the costs that are associated with building leaders, because it's not just that it can happen naturally overnight, but there is a little bit of an investment. And I think you have to make up front to build fantastic leaders. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So the idea, just to explain to everybody, what's the idea? You know, you build great leaders, you don't buy them. We kind of bought you. We brought you in from the outside, right? Yeah. Exception You're to like, the rule. That wasn't, yeah. that wasn't really buying, Carrie. I know what you pay me. But uh, yeah, we the idea is we we all sit there and go, I don't have the right leaders. But if I could get this guy, I know, from Arizona to come, and if I could mm. get this guy from New York and this person from Seattle and this person from Vancouver, then I'm going to build my dream team. And we ignore the people um, on, but you look at our staff at Connexus. Most of them are uh, raised up from the congregation. I think almost all of them are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Vast majority. And that by definition, that's how it has to be. You can have, you can have the biggest budget in the world. Give yourself 10 million, a hundred million dollars. I mean, pick a ridiculous figure. You, you still cannot afford to buy all the talent that you need to do what you need to do. So you've got to figure out how to develop leaders. And what that means, the cost associated with that, sure, if you, they eventually make staff, yeah, payroll cost, but it means you probably have the cost of investing in them, developing them, walking with them. And I know I, as a leader, still live in this fantasy world that I can just wave a magic wand and people show up and they're, they're perfect mm-hmm. on day one. And it just doesn't work that way. You got to develop them. You got to get in the trenches. You got you to meet with them. You got to give them the tools. Here's, here's something that churches don't invest nearly enough in um, training and equipment, plain and simple. Like if you're going to hire someone, we're looking at just in, in, in the company here, bringing on some new staff and I'm saying to them, Hey, you can take like 
a month to train yourself where well, obviously I'm going to be a part of that, but you know, if you need to take online courses, if you need to go somewhere, like invest in yourself. And that's the first thing churches cut. Same with gear. You walk by a brand new iMac, right? Sitting in my living room, which is going to fuel the podcast for the next three or four years. This one's done its time, but churches are loath to do that. We will find the old computer that nobody wanted and we'll put that into service. And now you get to sit there for five minutes while your programs load. Well, is that, are you really equipping your staff for that? And then you've got the, the hard work of just leadership development. I've interviewed Sarah Piercy, who you referenced on my podcast about being my assistant. We'll link to that in the show notes. But, you know, she started when she was 22, 10 years ago, and, or maybe 21. And I mean, she wasn't a great assistant and I wasn't a great boss, but we learned together. And now she's a rock star. I mean, she's incredible. But you have to be willing to invest in that learning curve. You know, Dylan, who's on on my team, who's been my EA for the last year while Sarah's on mat leave, you know, he led a national book launch at age 19. It's like, that's trial by fire, but you've got to be willing to, to make investments and take risks with people. And, and that means things aren't going to be done 100% the way you want. And just if you want them done the way you want and you think you can't do it better, just be fully prepared to lead a very small organization for the rest of your life. And what you'll discover though, this is, let me finish that thought. What, what you'll discover, Jeremy, is that, yeah, at first it's not done as well as you would like, or perhaps as well as you could do it. But then all of a sudden you're like, actually, these guys are pretty good. It's like being done almost as well or as well. And then eventually it's like, oh my gosh, they're rock stars. Like this is like, Almost everybody who does something other than what I do can do it better. And eventually your ultimate moniker of success is, do you have people who can do everything that you do better than you do it? Yeah. Wow. And so when you think about like leadership pipelines, like in terms of organizations, sometimes we look at some of the bigger ones that are, you know, down the road a little further than us and just assume like people just naturally flock to those great organizations and we're the only ones that have to fight for people. But as you talk with leaders, like, do you find that this is a problem everybody's facing or is it a problem that is just at the front lines of like trying to grow a church from 50 to 100 and 100 to 200? Yeah, if I understand the question right, like you're not going, most people really struggle to bring talent in from the outside. Yeah. And even if you're fairly good at it, it's probably going to be 10% of your team because you think of staff, but then you also think of volunteers, right? Like, Nobody's flying across the country to join you as a volunteer. You have to raise that up from the inside out. And that means it's hard work. You're dealing with actual people who have real challenges and real gifts. And you got to get in there and you got to journey with them. So it's hard, but that is the key. And I think a lot of leaders get paralyzed into either living in some dreamscape where all these people magically appear, or they just look at their people and they go, I don't have the right people. And I love one of the interviews we did on this podcast was with Brian Houston from Hillsong. And one of his enduring, you know, points that, that he made, which I think will stick with me for the rest of my life, is your job is to find the gold in people. There's gold in everybody. So you just, sometimes you, you got to mine for that gold. And, and if you can't see the good in the people that God has given you, and I'm not saying everybody's right for every job. Like, I get it. There are, there are spiritual gifts and people fit in certain places. But if you can't find the good in people, uh, then you're not going to find the good in the people who are coming in from the outside either. 
Um, it, 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 is it possible that some people get cynical though, when you think about like turnover around volunteers and even turnaround around staff? Like, have you been burned by this before? Yeah, um, for sure. And uh, we had really high turnover probably when we started, uh, like when we amalgamated the churches for a five or six year window, and this would be like 15, 20 years ago, we had really, really high turnover. And that was a combination of things. Number one, I was sliding into burnout. So if you're unhealthy at the top, like if you as a senior leader are personally not in a good place, your whole organization pays the price. It's just true. Healthy at the top, healthy at the bottom, unhealthy at the top, unhealthy at the bottom. It's just, it's just a law. You know, that's, that's the way it is. That's the way human, this, this, this world works. Uh, secondly, uh, we were not really well organized. And third, we were doing way too much. We were a program-based church. So we were open five nights a week. We had just constructed a new facility. You know, it was great. And uh, we were open five nights a week, but people were never home. So people were burning out. I, I didn't know how to lead a staff at the time. So I'm still trying to figure that one out. You know, it's, it's, it's super challenging. And so we had high turnover. There were, there were bodies everywhere. And I'm not proud of that moment. Like I look back on it and go, oof, I wish I, wish I would have learned some things earlier. It was so bad. And some leaders can relate to this, that when we're using pictures to celebrate, I would have to look at the picture and it's like, oh, we can't use this one because half those people left, you know? <laughs> and, and it's so funny because I was talking to someone uh, just this past weekend who found a YouTube video from literally a decade ago huh. from the early days of Connexus. And their comment unsolicited was, I can't believe how many of those people are still part of our church. Now, that makes me feel a lot better about this past decade than the previous decade. But I was young. I was trying to figure it out. And, you know, that was the visionary without a whole lot of operators and processors to use Les McEwen's language around him. I was learning how to lead a team. I was learning how to build a church. And yeah, there were bodies everywhere. And it wasn't like, you know, I screamed at people and they ran out crying. It was just, they got exhausted. They were tired. We were disorganized and we paid a price for that. Yeah. I want to shift gears if I can. I've yeah. got uh, a, a question that I'm really excited to, to actually dig in on because in lasting impact, you talk about prioritizing kids and teens. And so in terms of churches, obviously for church leaders listening, kids and teens are critical to the success mm -hmm. of a growing church. Uh, but there are departments, if you're a business leader, I'm sure that you don't have necessarily like your finger on, but they're still critical to your success. I mean, the last time that maybe, you know, you walk through our kids' environments might've been a long time ago. And yet because of their um, intense, um, uh, like they're just so important. How do you as a leader make sure that that gets led super well without your direct involvement? Yeah. So in the early days, me leading VBC, uh, it wasn't led particularly well because I was leading it. But what I learned early on is the next generation is the key to the future and it's the key to the present. And so I realized, first of all, you need to hire in that area. I learned a little bit later on, you need to hire well in that area. And what that means to get really practical and really granular is you need to pay well and you need to fund it. Um, William Vanderblumen would say, you know, my conversations with him, one of the most sought after positions in the American church today and the North American church would be the next gen director, or family ministry director. And it's also commanding a higher and higher salary because you think of the skill set, you know, most people would say, well, my number two is operations, you know, so we pay our operations person really well. Yeah. And that's complicated. You got a budget, you got that stuff, but my goodness, nobody, you look at our church, like nobody 
leads more volunteers, I think, than Shauna, our next gen person. That's a highly complicated job. When you need hundreds of volunteers to serve in next gen ministry, someone who can oversee that, that's a very high level of skill and leadership and you need to fund the program well. So I think a lot of pastors, it's like, oh, we have some volunteers. It's not really important. It's just fine. And it's a, a do-it-yourself attitude. Well, if you have a do-it-yourself, doesn't cost me much dollar store attitude to the next generation, you're going to get those kinds of results. And, you know, we have a strategy. We're fortunate that we've worked with Reggie Joyner since we started Connexus. We've been an orange church since day one. So we have used that strategy consistently of engaging the parents and refining the message. So that part's done, but it's just raising up the volunteers, setting a high bench where, a benchmark, I should say, where we ask our volunteers to serve pretty much every week so they can build relationships with the kids. Like, man, those are some decisions we made early on when we started Connexus that have paid back again and again and again and again. And I think every single year our family ministry has grown. Even if our adults have backed off a little bit, mm. um, you know, and we had a big high growth year last year all around, but like kids, kids are the most important thing and you really want to build an incredible ministry. And that lean leaders, that means investing. Yeah. And obviously Shauna is one of like, man, she's a brilliant leader. We love mm -hmm. her and she's a self-starter. She's driving it, but take us back to like pre-Shauna days, if that's mm -hmm. all right. How do you, as the senior leader, continue to drill down and make sure that you're tracking in the right direction in that environment that you're, again, you're not going to get a chance to be a part of on a week to week basis? Yeah, I think some of that is you need to set a shared strategy mm -hmm. with your family ministry people, your next gen leader, your student leaders. Uh, you need to make sure that they are properly funded, that they have everything they need to do the job. And of course, everybody has restraints, but what often happens is you're like, no, we'll just spend the money on new cameras for Maine rather mm -hmm. than really funding what they need in family ministry. You know, your job as a senior leader is not only to get on the same page. So to get on the same page, you need to be on the same room, in the same room. But you also need to be able to remove all the barriers. So it's asking those people, what do you need? Like when we do our environments, we spend a, a lot of time and money thinking through the physical environments for our kids' ministry. That's at our portable locations and our permanent locations. So I would say it's things like that. And then they should probably be a direct report, like somebody in next gen, not saying everybody, not children, not student necessarily, but if you had next gen, somebody in that area should probably be a direct report to the senior leader. Oh, that's really good to know. And and were you a part of those early conversations around the strategy as we were kind of locking in on orange? Oh, 100%, and, yeah. Okay, so that set the tone for, as an organization, it was aligned with, the vision of the senior leader. Yeah. And then the other thing to remember too is 70 to 80%. Well, actually I think it's higher at Connexus, but uh, you know, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of the people, preachers that you're talking to week after week are parents with children at home. You, you have to engage that reality. Like they're, they're in the mix of parenting, trying to figure it out. So that gives you an opportunity to vision cast to, uh, to deal with the real life issues that, that parents are actually dealing with. I know the answer to this question. I think it's good for listeners though. Your kids are grown and gone. Mm -hmm. How do you as a communicator make sure that you still are able to speak to audiences that are a little bit younger than you? <laughs> a lot younger than me. It's hard, man. It, I, I'll be honest with you. That's one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to the day where we have more younger voices on stage. And, you know, my friend Reggie Joyner, 
he, he has grandkids. We don't, but uh, he, he seems to have this gift, this propensity to just speak into the next generation really well. Uh, I'm, I'm more into adult issues. That's my thing. So I think you have to, uh, you know, you have to have diversity on the platform from a number of perspectives, but one of them is through age bracket as well. As you've heard me say a million times, we need more communicators with diaper change stories. <laughs> it is exactly what you say. a few years. I say it all the time. But listen, you can come by my place anytime. No, I don't need you change can get diapers. Diaper no, change I don't miss that at if all. You want. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you've spoken at Connexus and- well, not only that, but I, I think truthfully for you, like the, you sit at so many tables with so many other younger leaders and I'm always amazed at your openness to A, feedback, and then B, to input from as you plan out what's coming up next, that there's uh, just a voice for those of us who are decades younger, we'll just mm. leave it at decades. and. It's making me feel wonderful. And uh, and like you authentically listen, like you get to yeah. messages and it's like, oh, like that came out of that meeting where we sat and and there was feedback and there was well, input. And you raise a point, I've, I've talked about this a lot, um, but you can't be, you know, I'm 54. You can't be surrounded by men in their 50s. You need women, you need people with different perspectives. And, uh, you know, most of my team are people who are decades younger than me. And when you surround yourself with younger people, you tend to think younger, you tend to, and you know, my own tastes and preferences are probably young for my age, but you know, I, I don't actually know what it's like to be 21 today. So, so you got to surround yourself with people at that stage who can call you and be open. Don't, you know, sit there expecting to be Yoda on the mountain and all these people flowing to you. You, you got to go and be a student of them. Mm. Oh, that's so good, right? Because mm. you—that is actually something that you honestly model that you try to and and, yeah. and bring in that that feedback. Oh, well, and good. younger, you know, younger leaders, younger adults give me a lot of energy. I find sometimes, you know, cynicism and age are frequent companions, and sometimes you get around an older crowd and they're just complaining about this or how their back hurts or whatever, and you're like, Ugh, get me out of here. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I love it. I love it. Okay, Carrie, I'm thinking about church growth. Mm. What's the most frustrating excuse that you hear from leaders about why they can't grow? Aha. Well, you don't know my community. Like, excuse me? <laughs> All right. All right. You want, you want me to get going here? <laughs> yeah, I want, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, it's different in my city. It's different in my region. It's different in my area. You don't know my community. It's like, really, you're that fundamentally different. So you're telling me, that no one in your community, uh, like you all have different cars, like all the cars that get sold in every other city don't get sold in your city. And all the clothes that get worn in all the other cities don't get worn in your city. And I've heard people like, oh, it's different on the west side of the city. It's like, really? Like Starbucks <laughs> won't locate there? Are you kidding me? So Starbucks won't locate there. And let me guess, you're listening to none of the music that anyone else, we live in a monoculture. We do. People watch the same movies. They watch, and sure, you got your team, blah, 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 go whatever. But people watch football. People watch baseball. People watch hockey. People watch soccer. People, people, you know, it's a monoculture. And I hear this from Canadians all the time. Makes me sick. They're like, it's so different in Canada. No, it's not. Have you ever traveled anywhere? Have you ever, ever been outside your little bubble? It's not that different. You might say out and about a little bit different because you're East Coast, <laughs> but from the Miramichi, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I, it's, I can put it on. It can get thick, but- it's, Can it get thick? The, I well, the it accent, was thick. Well, <laughs> I like to think you've actually, you've kept the Canadian out of your accent have it, I? reasonably well, I think. Well, I but know. see, I have a Toronto accent. 
Toronto, Toronto doesn't really Toronto, have a the Toronto center, accent. The Toronto, center, of center of the universe. Yeah, absolutely. As we like to say, uh, to the rest of Canada hates that. Uh, <laughs> but I have a Toronto accent. So, no, you know what? It, it's, it's just your context is not that different. Yeah. So what separates then? Because there's places, like there's pockets in the U.S. in particular, where we see massive life change happening, massive churches, people are coming to know Jesus like nonstop. What, what then is happening in those environments? Why are those leaders seeing such great growth and it's not happening in other parts of the country? Because they ignored the obstacles and saw the opportunity. I mean, you want to pick a tough context. Uh, my buddy, he's been a guest several times on this, Mark Clark in Vancouver. Um, it is not easy to grow a church in Vancouver, but Mark's got five, 6,000 people on the weekend at five locations. Like you can do it. We've seen churches grow in Seattle. We see them grow in California. We see them grow in the most unlikely places. You see them uh, in, in Vermont. Chris Gepner in Vermont has got just a ton of people. Josh Gagnon in New England. Like, I mean, we've had so many guests on this podcast who are growing churches in unlikely places and a lot of that is the mindset. And so what I would say, one of the keys to overcome, and I address this in, in the Church Growth Masterclass, is you got to get past the can't do mentality. And I run into far too many leaders who are like, well, here are all the reasons this isn't going to work. Well, to quote one of my favorite quotes, Henry Ford, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So if you're like, here's why it's not going to work, guess what? It's not going to work. Now, just because you think it will work doesn't mean it will work. But I'll tell you, if you think it won't, you're pretty much condemning yourself from day one. So, you know, I remember George Cunningham, that boss I talked about when I first started here, he said, I believe it's possible. I believe we can grow a church in the middle of nowhere. And we are in the middle of nowhere, as you know, in Oro Township, an hour north of Toronto. And guess what? God did it. You know, it was the the fastest growing church in the country in our denomination and the second largest, third largest in the country and grew it in a cornfield, like literally. It, it is very much in the middle of nowhere. It like, is. No, I'm the not, we're not making Oro. this up. Come, yeah. As Mark Clark said, because we are named, he's like, dude, you have cows for neighbors. It's like, <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, but some of them are Christian now, you know, so... <laughs> So you can, you, you have to, you have to look at what's possible. You know, I started this podcast. Everyone's like, man, your podcast, your podcast. It's like, we're in my basement of my house. Okay. So you, you know, anything, we live in a world where anything is possible and we have a God where anything is possible and your mindset as a leader, um, you know, you can't guarantee that with a positive mindset, it's all going to go the way you want. You know, I've had train wreck periods in my life too. But if you're just there going, well, here's why it won't work. And here's why, here's why it's not. Guess what? It's not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So Carrie, somebody's listening. They're like, all right, I'm in. I want to try something. I'll take a step. What's the next step for somebody that's willing to take a chance at seeing their church grow? You got to cast a vision big enough to die for, or at least to give your life for. And, and, you know, you, you start with a really big vision and you're worried about challenging people. You're worried that, that people might, not, you know, oh, that's too much. What, your kids' ministry people, they serve every week or you're asking people to sacrifice. I mean, when we launched Connexus, oh, that's a whole story for another day. Uh, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was a really interesting year. And long story short, uh, when I announced the church, we didn't have a bank account. And then even after we got a bank, so I had to start it all out of my own savings. And, and then when we finally got a bank account to receive donations, we didn't have charitable status. 
So I had to go out and raise over half a million dollars saying, Jeremy, I want you and Chantel to give sacrificially to this. I can't guarantee you'll ever get a tax receipt. Are you in? Now we've applied and maybe the government will give us one, but are you in? And people gave over $550,000 in 10 days under those conditions. So you just, you got to look at somebody and say, man, this is worth giving your life to. Are you in? Because I'm in, we're in, are you in? That's where you start. And if you don't believe in it that much, why are you doing it? Like why, if, if you don't have that level of conviction as a leader, then why are you even in leadership? You shouldn't be in leadership. Like you should, like if you're not willing to die for it or at least live for it, then how can you call other people to live for it? So it starts with your conviction. And I'll tell you when that happens, like that inspires people. So Carrie, you, you know, you may not want to share this and, and we can cut this out of the podcast, but when we met and I was deciding whether or not to move my family here, I asked you about your journey of coming north of Toronto after school and yeah. taking those three little churches and and what sparked that for you? Because you actually had a better offer, if that's fair oh, to yeah, say. I had a better offer. And, and you told me a story about a guy that changed everything for you. Is just, it's fascinating. So reality is law is my background, as a lot of regular listeners would know. And I did my law in downtown Toronto. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. God called me out of it supernaturally. And again, I'm not one of those people who hears from God every day. Trust me. But a handful of times, two handfuls of time in my life, I would be like, wow, that was God. There was no question. So um, I had been serving at a church in Toronto that really catered to the downtown core, lawyers, accountants, you know, investment bankers, that kind of stuff. And I was very comfortable in that circle. And uh, I was serving there, preaching there, leading the youth group there. And I really didn't know what I was doing, but it was, you know, my local church involvement. And then we were trying to figure out my calling. Long story short, we'd heard about these student charges an hour north of Toronto in this place I'd never heard of called Oro, where I now live. And it was these three little churches that we started talking about. So I came up here and I preached and did preach off with another guy. And uh, I thought, well, maybe they just won't ask me and then I'll, I'll, I'll stay in Toronto. But I told the guys at the church in Toronto, I'm like, hey, just so you know, I threw my hat name in the, the hat uh, an hour north of here. And while well, they had an emergency session meeting, elders meeting, and they came back and they said, here's, here's the deal. We're going to pay you X amount of dollars, which was double the salary up here. We're going to pay you X amount of dollars. And I mean, it was less than I made in law, but it was still decent for ministry. And uh, we'll make you senior pastor within five years of then one of the most prestigious churches in Toronto. You'll be senior pastor within five years. I'm like, well, that's a pretty good deal. But I have my, uh, my name in up here in Oro. I thought, well, maybe they'll reject me. Like they won't want me. And then the decision's made. That's nice and easy. I don't have to make a decision. So that night uh, when they were meeting up here in Oro, we were at our apartment in Toronto. My wife and I were praying about it. And I got a call just around 10 o'clock from uh, George, who was in charge of the whole voting process here. And he just said, so Carrie, we want you to come here. You won by one vote. Cora, who's still part of our church, was that vote. She'll tell you that story one day. So you won by one vote, not exactly a ringing endorsement. But I didn't know any better. And I said, oh, I don't, I don't know. Now I've got a choice to make and I'm struggling so much with it. And I said, George, just give me three days and I'll let you know down the road. But I was like deflated because now I had to choose. 
And he said, oh, Carrie, why don't you just come up to Oro and help us? I'm like, George, I can't make the decision on the spot. So I hung up the phone. I said to Tony, "Ugh, now what? And she said, why don't you just open the Bible? We'll see what it has to say. And, you know, sarcastic me. It's like, you don't just open the Bible and like hear God's word like that. Like you don't do that. And, and she goes, well, what would the apostle Paul do? And my mind went immediately to Acts 16 and it was the story of Paul trying to decide where to go. And he had this vision in the middle of the night because he tried to go to Pamphylia and Phrygia and other places and he was prevented. In the middle of the night, he had a vision of a man from Macedonia. And I knew enough about the New Testament to know that Macedonia was poor, just like these little churches were. And the, the man in Paul's dream said to him, why don't you come to Macedonia and help us? And... Uh, that's exactly what George had said to me on the phone five minutes earlier. So we cried, we prayed, I called George back and I said, we're coming. And then I told the Toronto people we're not. So here we are 24 years later and we've seen God do just unbelievable things. And, you know, we've scaled all the barriers, the 200 barrier, the 400 barrier, 800 barrier, 1000 barrier, uh, multiple campuses. Now we're pushing 2000, trying to figure that one out. Thank goodness Jeff Brody's leading that. Uh, but, you know, I share all those things in the Church Growth Masterclass. And it, I, I just want to say very clearly, it is not a guarantee of growth. Nobody can guarantee that. God gives the growth. But you can position yourself to facilitate it or you can get in the way. And I've been spending 24 years trying to get out of the way. Awesome. So as we wrap up, I mean, that's some of my story. But what what has been your favorite part of being up here at our church and seeing God move? Yeah, you know, Carrie, you you told me that story uh, when we had breakfast at uh, the Grape and Olive in Aurelia. Yeah. And the thing from start to finish that drew my family to this place is this vision that God might do something through this church, that we might actually see people come to know Jesus that in this moment don't know him. And, and to create a church that unchurched people would love to attend and then to get to lead them to Jesus is just such a white hot vision that it, it makes decisions for us. It speeds things up for us. It draws, I think, people into leadership for us. And, and then I think people actually are coming to know Jesus. Like yeah. I think of Nancy's story. I was just going to say, you have to tell Nancy's story. That's where we're going to close. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and there's just, it's just such a great journey to see. I mean, there's, there's so many stories. Jeremy told me this story and I'm like, I, I don't really believe it, but it's true. I've seen her video, her baptism video. It's true. A year ago, this lady comes in for our baptism Sunday and uh, and and needs to get baptized because she's accepted Christ. And 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 she said, you can find her, her story on our website because it was a part of- Oh, we'll link to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and she came out of an abusive relationship. She ended up having to have brain surgery actually. Wow. And, and her whole- career up until that moment um, was as someone who did um, like tarot cards and seances. In the occult. In the occult. It was a hundred percent an occultic uh, career. People would call her for all sorts of different kinds of readings and crystal ball readings. And, and, and she had, after her brain surgery, a near death experience where she mm. had this, this really truthful experience of feeling like she was being led into the afterlife, but into hell. And and she would say she smelled um, smoke and hellfire and oh the nurse smelled smoke and the nurse came into the room, In room. wondering what was burning and uh, and for Nancy that moment she cried out to Jesus and and her vitals came back she came back to life and she realized and recognized in that moment that Jesus had saved her that she didn't deserve it and yet Jesus had saved her life 
And so for the last year, um, her story has been not only just following Jesus, but then desperately trying to tell everyone that she meets that the hope comes from following him. So get this, she gets, and, you, and you've, you've seen this, she gets people calling, wanting mm. readings. Yeah. Nancy, give me a tarot card, get, tell me about my future. And she'll tell them, oh, I am so sorry. I don't do that anymore. And to be honest, that's not where you find the truth but I can tell you where to find the truth. Why don't, you, unbelievable. why don't you come with me to church? And she's brought dozens of people to Conexus. And we just now know when she walks in with somebody that's new, we know the story. Yeah, you know the background. And so it's just a blast that we get a chance to celebrate. And that's one, but that's somebody's life that's been transformed because decades ago, there's a group of people willing to take a risk, willing to look beyond themselves and willing to actually sacrifice for this mission that God has has laid on their hearts, on your heart, yeah. on the hearts of the people in those original churches. And so to be a part of that and to see now thousands and tens of thousands of people just here locally and then beyond the opportunity that we get to um, to hopefully help many more people come to know Jesus. Uh, I mean, it's the most compelling thing in the world. Well, and that's a vision that I would have for every church leader listening and for every church, honestly, anywhere, any church, anywhere, is, you know, these original churches, nobody would have believed that they would happen. And one of the great joys for me is that Phyllis and Jim and Kareen and Cora and Dave and Dave Shellswell. And, you know, there are others who, who I probably just haven't got their name right now, but like nobody would have ever believed it. And it can happen and it can happen in your church and it's needed in your community and God can use you to do it. And that's the hope is that you would just reach more people. And if you can get your congregation out of its funk and have a white hot vision. Uh, that's what some of the course is about. And then if you can learn how to stop doing everything and how to delegate and organize and lead staff and lead volunteers and find the volunteers you're with and um, really lead at the level where you don't even know everything anymore. And, you know, I'm the worst guy to do a building tour of our broadcast campus because people ask me all these questions. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I was just the leader. I just raised some money and vision. And, you know, it like you, you got to get to that point where you're very strategic about what you know and what you don't know. It's like, so Jeremy, what exactly do you do at Conexus? I know you're a campus pastor, <laughs> but like, what else do you do? Right. But you have to get comfortable with that, that place. And, and so that's, that's what all this is about in the church growth masterclass. And, you know, again, no guarantee of growth, but just if you do some of these things, you'd be amazed at what can happen. Jeremy, thanks. Hey, thank you for the opportunity and thanks for letting me learn. And honestly, for anybody listening, it's just a privilege. Carrie's the real deal and uh, you really should. You should take this step. You should jump in and be a part of this course um, because you're going to learn from somebody that lives it. It's the real thing. And I hope that it'll be helpful for you. Well, that was a lot of fun. If you want to do the deep dive into this, head on over to churchgrowthmasterclass.com. Today is the last day to get it at this rate. The price increases tomorrow at midnight. And I would love for you to get in on everything. So the Church Growth Masterclass is the most comprehensive resource I've ever released on the subject of church growth. And there's a starter edition, there's an advanced edition, in the starter edition, it can help you out if you're like, wow, I sound an awful lot like those churches all those years ago. Nobody wants to change. Nobody wants to grow. I feel like I got to put the paddles on this church. That is what the starter edition is about. But some of you have another problem. You are starting to, well, you're reaching new people, but you're not growing. You've been stuck at 100, 75, 50, 200, 500, 800. That's a huge barrier for years. And you don't know how to get past that. Um, well, we address that in the church 
Growth Masterclass as well. So head on over to churchgrowthmasterclass.com today while you can still get this introductory pricing, which is going to disappear tomorrow. And if you haven't yet checked out Pro Media Fire, listeners of this podcast get 10% off for life. Uh, go to promediafire.com forward slash carry and get some media reaching your community today. They will do all your graphic design, all your videos, et cetera, et cetera, and do such a good job. Hey guys, if you subscribe to this podcast, you get it absolutely free. And uh, that's what I'd love for you to do. I hope this episode has really helped you. We have a new one coming down the pipe next week with Margaret Feinberg. And uh, I had a lot of fun with this conversation. We talked about why writing is now 95% marketing and how to do it well, connecting with your audience. I mean, she's got a number of best-selling books. She sold millions of books. It's going to be a lot of fun. So here's an excerpt from next week's episode. Everybody, I believe, has a creative window. Even if you don't consider yourself creative, you are creating. Whether you are making yep. architectural designs or whether you are building spreadsheets, it does not matter. And so I believe that every person has a certain rhythm to their creativity. And for me, my strongest days are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if I've had a weekend off. And so I may write for 12 or 14 hours on a Monday, 12 hours on a Tuesday, 10 on a Wednesday. But honestly, by Thursday... I'm no good anymore. I may be able to write three mm. or four hours, but then I shift sides of my brain into the editing mode. And then on the last day of the week, I'll do more administrative task-oriented. And so I coordinate and maximize my creative writing time for my creative peak time to get the most out of it. And I can be the most efficient. So that's next week on the podcast. Really looking forward to my conversation with Margaret. It was uh, really powerful. And when somebody has sold millions of books, and tells you how to do it. I get that question all the time as an author myself, like, how do I sell books? How does that work, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want to miss it. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. By the way, I don't think I mentioned transcripts. We have them along with show notes. So you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 266 or just head on over to leadlikeneverbefore.com and type in Jeremy MacDonald, M-A-C, Donald, MacDonald, and you'll see the show notes for this one. We will catch up with you next week. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.